This is Once for All, where Jude 3 says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen in as the faith held by believers of all times is now delivered to you. Oftentimes, someone will ask the question, something like this, do you know Jesus? And most people uh, would maybe say something like, well, yes, I know Jesus. But then then maybe there's a follow-up question, uh, what Jesus is it that you know? And you'd maybe scratch your head, well, are there multiple Jesus that there are to know? Well, no, there's only one historical Jesus. But it is so often the case that the Jesus that people talk about are not all the same Jesus. That's what the book is about that we'll be discussing today in a starting a new series with the author Matthew Richard. The uh, the book is called Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? 12 False Christ. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of Once for All. It's great to have you with us. I'm your host Pastor Evan Gigline. I'm the pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon, and we would love to hear from you during the next hour. The toll-free number to call in anywhere you're listening is 1-844-51-FAITH. 1-844-51-FAITH. You can also send your emails in and I will read them on the air. The email address is deliveredonceforall at gmail.com. Deliveredonceforall at gmail.com. The author of the book is Pastor Matthew Richard. Pastor Richard, welcome to Once For All. Hey, it's good to be here, Evan. So what what do you mean, will the real Jesus please stand up? Uh, Some people think, well, there's only one Jesus. So what do you mean by the real Jesus stand up? Uh, very good question. You know, we, we live in a culture, as you mentioned before, that uh, has a plethora, actually, uh, an abundance of false Christs. And when I mean false Christ, I'm not talking about individuals who are dressing up and uh, pretending to be Jesus. I'm talking about uh, what happens in our minds, in the American mind, in the North American mind, where people uh, construct for themselves in their mind uh, a Jesus to suit their own fancy, uh, a Jesus that will... Uh, appeal to them. And so they take the Jesus of the Bible, the historic Jesus of the Bible, and then they subtract things that they don't like, and they add things that they want, and they customize uh, a Jesus to uh, you know, basically appease what they want in their own spirituality. And thus, they uh, end up with a false Christ. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's a false Christ that they've created in their mind, which is the essence of idolatry. When we think of idolatry, sometimes we think of maybe you know erecting some kind of a uh, you know some kind of a mascot or a totem pole or having some kind of a figurine to bow down and pray to. Uh, but how would you define idolatry? Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard it said before that idolatry is thinking anything about the Lord that is unworthy. <clears throat> excuse me, that is unworthy of Him. And so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I I often think of when I think of an idol, it's something that you know maybe. Uh, some uh, people group in in some far distant land where they take a piece of wood and they carve some sort of statue, then they bow before the statue. But uh, more properly, an idol is anything that uh, 
really takes the place of the Lord. I mean, we can worship almost anything, uh, anything that we put our fear and love and trust in. And so uh, what we end up doing, especially in our North American context, like I said before, we, we, we craft in our own mind uh, the way that we want Jesus to be for ourselves, the way that we believe he really is. Um, and so then we, we create and we chisel away at Jesus of the Bible. So we, 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 we uh, take, take our mind and we, we uh, uh, you know, go against Christ on certain things that are unfavorable to us. And so we knock that off. And then we accessorize him. Um, we're all about choices. As North Americans, we want we want what we want, and we want it right now. We want it our way. I mean, you think even like Burger King says, "Have it your way." And so, um, you know, even with our cell phones, we we customize everything. And so, we do the same for Jesus. We do the same for our own spirituality. And then we we cry foul anytime anybody else comes at us and says that you know you can't have it that way. Um, we say, "No, this is this is my Jesus. This is who Jesus is to me." And so, in essence, we do. We 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 create in our mind. Uh, we take a chisel and we form a savior according to our own image, something that is agreeable uh, to us. And it's uh, really no different. It's just instead of having that uh, wooden or that stone figure, we, we've actually done that in our own mind. Why do, can you explain why we do this? Because, you know, it seems like a person could uh, take the 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 Bible, the historical documents, and find out about that Jesus, how history presents him, and either accept him or dismiss him. Um, in other words, I don't go read about Muhammad or Joseph Smith and say, well, this isn't quite the figure that I want, so I'll just adapt the Joseph Smith that I want or the Muhammad that I want. Why is it true that people will take Jesus and change the historical Jesus to fit their own wants and desires? Yeah, uh, very good question. Well, I think I think a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, um, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, this is the, this is the way that the evil one would work. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I once heard it said that. <clears throat> excuse me, I once heard it said that uh, if Satan were to take over a city, um, you know, what what would it sound like? What would it look like? You know, if Satan overtook a city, um, you know, and you immediately you think, well, if the evil one took over my my little town of Gwinter, North Dakota, you know. You would think, I immediately think of fires and, and vandalism and theft and murder and, and uh, just, you know, graffiti everywhere, and it's just, just, just an absolute pit. Um, but this uh, uh, gentleman, uh, was a Presbyterian minister, uh, Barnhouse, I believe his name was, he, he offered up a solution. He said if Satan were to take over a city, uh, you would have pristine streets. Um, you know, the little boys and girls would say, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. The bars would be empty, and the uh, churches... Uh, they would be full every single Sunday. And then he said, this is the catch where Christ isn't preached. And so if you think about that, the evil one uh, wants nothing more than Christ not to be preached. But if Christ it cannot be eliminated from the conversation of Christians, then I think really the next best thing, and maybe even more so, uh, probably even more devious, is, is instead of not having Christ preached, to have the wrong Christ preached, to to uh, actually twist uh, the, the the message of Jesus, uh, so you know to inject that leaven into the lump, right? A little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump. Uh, to ever so slightly turn the message, uh, so that way you're not necessarily rejecting Jesus, but yet you have, you know, you essentially have by creating a false Christ. And so I think I think you know, first of all, you know, we we have the evil one who attacks. Um, we have it's a spiritual warfare from that perspective, where the evil one, evil one does not want Christ preached, and if he is, he doesn't want the true Christ preached. And then the other thing is, 
I think it's a lot more convenient um, for people who look at Jesus, and for the most part, I think most people in America still have a somewhat of a favorable opinion of Jesus. Uh, they look at Christ and they see the picture of him on the cross, and there's there's a certain degree of sympathy, I believe, uh, towards uh, the Christ figure in America. Um, but with that said, you know, the one of the Bible, boy, that's just a little bit too much to uh, take in. So we, we want to embrace Jesus, but the one of the Bible we don't feel comfortable with, so uh, that creates something what we call cognitive dissonance. It, it, it creates a discomfort in our mind. So then we have to either reject him, which we don't want to do, but we think to ourselves, well, I can maybe embrace him, but if I do, I need to shed some of the stuff I don't like and add some things that I, you know, think that maybe he's lacking. You also talk um, in your book a little bit about uh, just the um, the culture of relativism that we have today, particularly when it comes to uh, religious claims. And so, while the the average person would not be okay with this, you know, cognitive dissonance that you mentioned, that one person would say that the wall in the room is red, while at the same time uh, a person would say, no, the wall is blue, and that everyone in the room would just kind of be okay with that disagreement and, and not you know, think that there's a contradiction there. When it comes to spiritual claims in our, in our um, you know, postmodern culture, that those spiritual claims can be contradictory, but yet people don't really see them as a contradiction. Would you talk about that? Yeah, um, you know, when we say relativism, uh, boy, man, relativism is, is absolutely everywhere in our day and age. And, and the surprising thing is, is relativism is really not new. Um, not, not to bore um, all the listeners with a huge history lesson, uh, but if we go way, way back, I mean, we're talking some 2,500 years ago, uh, there's a guy named Protagoras, and uh, he basically taught this, and he's going to really summarize it. He said that man is the measure of all things, and all things man is the measure of. In other words, uh, how do we know what is true? Well, it depends on each individual person to discern that for themselves. So, in other words, uh, in a contemporary way, Protagoras taught that it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Uh, truth is in the eye of the beholder. And so this, this is a, a philosophy that was uh, prevalent about 2,500 years ago. Um, it it, it kind of took root with some people. But, but surprisingly, <clears throat> surprisingly, this is the uh, philosophy that uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, uh, it's a philosophy that they actually fought against. And so we think of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, these guys were not, uh, you know, Judeo-Christians by any means, uh, Judeo-Christian background uh, by any means, but they, they did see the threat of this and they fought against it. They, they knew that a society that was based upon relativism, that if truth was in the eye of the beholder, they knew a society that operated that way would be in chaos. It would not function. So they actively fought against that. Well, surprisingly, um, you know, we see, you know, nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that same ideology is emerging in our culture today. Um, this, this old idea of Protagoras, where we uh, have this idea of relativism where what might be true for me is not true for you. And, uh, hey, you know, uh, truth is what we make it to be. And uh, so then we each embody our own truth and what we believe is true. Um, and then what happens when we start colliding with each other in our culture? Well, um, instead of being able to objectively look at things because we've lost all objectiveness, we, we cry out foul when anybody were to step on our own individual truths we made up. We, we fight and we lash out. We uh, label people haters, haters and bigots. 
um, as a culture. And so it's really quite tragic how much this relativism has uh, picked up where um, each individual person says, you know, I'm the maker of truth for myself. And frankly, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, it never did work before. Um, it's very dangerous for culture. Um, and it's definitely at play when we look at our spirituality, especially when we look at Jesus, where each individual person tries to make Christ uh, fit into their image, and they, they make him to be the Savior for themselves uh, in a relativistic way. Uh, in your book, as you approach these false Christs, you do so through forms of uh, stories of encounters that you've had. Um, so, so each one will encounter another person that you've had a discussion with as you've been out and about. Uh, why did you decide to approach the book in this way? You know, uh, when I initially, you know, set out to write the book, um, you know, I had about seven or eight uh, false Christs that I identified, and you know, expanded that, got up to about ten. And I thought, well, as long as I'm at ten, I might as well go, you know, a dozen, you know, make it a, just a good even dozen there. And so, but the, my concern was, you know, I don't know how many people would want to read a book where you have more of a theoretical, academic, uh, theological discussion of twelve false Christs. Um, though that would be important, and I think that it would definitely reach a market of people that would want to look into that. Uh, my my struggle was though is is you know how does this come across the average person you know in other words what does this look like um, you know so we could talk about this theologically or theoretically which really uses a lot of brain power um, but the power of story really grabs a hold of our emotions uh, it brings it into um, you know, brings it into everyday life. And so I wanted to have stories in each individual chapter where uh, the reader is introduced to a person that I've met that actually embodies and holds and subscribes to a false Christ. And so that way it, it not only pulls you in um, academically in order to, to really assess what's going on, but it pulls you into an emotional story where you can put yourself in uh, my shoes and encounter with me uh, these people who actually hold to these false Christs. And um, I, think, I think really kind of the fun thing that as I was working on the book, what really kind of came across really fun was um, – Realizing that as an author, I can I can really uh, you know hit pause whenever I want as an author. I mean you know as I'm crafting the book, so these stories go along. You meet these individuals and their false Christ that they subscribe to, and then every so often I'm like well, you know we're going to hit pause there and stop, and then I'm going to take a step back and give a commentary on what is going on, and so that way we can see what's going on with the other individual, what's going on under the hood, if you could say. Um, you know, what, what is going on, how are they processing, why are they thinking the way that they're thinking. And so, you know, we, we uh, talked talk yesterday while well, was with you and uh, Brian Wolfmiller, and I think it was Brian that said it's almost like peeling back layers, um, you know, peeling back layers and looking underneath what is going on, the presuppositions that the people hold to. So it, I think, I, hopefully that comes across, you know, for the reader to have a lot of fun with that, where they anticipate, where they're listening to the story and say, okay, what's going on here? And then we hit pause and like, oh, I see it. I totally get why they're thinking the way they're thinking, and this is why they're creating a false Christ. And one of the things I noticed you mentioned several times in the book uh, is that you know you don't bring up these stories for the purpose of uh, that we we can kind of have the intellectual high ground and say, all right, we've we've won the debate. Um, how is it that you approach these conversations throughout your book? Yeah, you know, the, the thing is, what can happen is, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it would be kind of 
silly to appeal to this, but the old the old Spider-Man movie. Um, you know, I don't know if you ever saw the Spider-Man movies, but uh, uh, Peter Parker, right? Uh, his his uncle would always say, you know, with with great power comes great responsibility. I think that's just a real fun line. Uh, but w- any time that you um, start learning and processing how people think when you start assessing what we're really looking at this book is how to understand people's worldviews, how they think and why they think the way that they do, which, you know, in a sense, that gives a person great power. You know, so as, as you study the book, you can understand, well, this is why people think the way that they do. This is how they process. And in, in so doing, you can actually um, feel very empowered that you that you understand another person's worldview even better than they understand it themselves. But, um, you know, with great power becomes great responsibility because I think it's very easy uh, to come against a person, especially if you've been trained and know what to look for. You can come in and demolish a person in an argument. Uh, but just because you demolish somebody in an argument or you pick their argument apart, um, doesn't mean that you win, especially in Christianity. Uh, Christianity is not about uh, pulverizing our neighbor and beating them into submission, showing our, our, our you know, showing our academic uh, intellect. Um, no, it's, it's confessing Jesus with compassion. And so, in this book, my my hope was uh, definitely my hope was to come across from the perspective that we're looking at these people's stories, not to. Um, get great power so that we can demolish them, but that we would understand what's going on so we could have compassion and insight in order to serve our neighbor. And we serve our neighbor by uh, proclaiming law and gospel, by sh- by helping them see their sin, uh, as we too are sinners, and then to help them see Jesus, the real Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins. So the the approach is one of compassion, not one of using power uh, to to pulverize or to beat down our neighbor to prove that uh, we are right. Uh, it's more so about confessing Christ, the real Jesus. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then when we get back from the break, we're going to start looking into some of these false Christs that uh, Matt Richard describes in his book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? He's a pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Winter, North Dakota, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Once for All, Don't Go Away. The phone lines are now open. Call toll-free 1-844-51-FAITH. That's 1-844-51-FAITH. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. While Congress is debating whether or not to cut off Planned Parenthood tax funding, the abortion giant has gone overboard telling anyone who will listen they're a health care provider and abortion is just a small part of what they do. Pro-life group Live Action did some undercover phoning to Planned Parenthood facilities. The woman asked for adoption and ultrasound services to help her continue the pregnancy. The chain of abortion mills not only doesn't provide adoption services, several told her to Google it to find someone who did. As for ultrasound, the woman caller was told that service is limited only to abortion clients. Planned Parenthood does over a third of all abortions in the U.S., but only 1 or 2 percent of breast exams, cancer screenings, and pap smears. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. For today's Takedown Minute, we hear a few lines from the Athanasian Creed. This historic Christian confession teaches us there is one God and that he reveals himself as three distinct persons. It says, 
the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. The Athanasian Creed also says, There is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. As the Athanasian Creed proclaims, so we believe, whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will, without doubt, perish eternally. That's the Athanasian Creed in today's Takedown Minute. Welcome back to Once for All, where we're talking with Pastor Matt Richard, author of the brand new book coming out very soon. Will the real Jesus please stand up? And Matt, in this uh, in in chapter one of the book, we meet uh, the mascot, which I'll let you describe. But we we encounter Jillian, who you met on an, on an airplane. Jillian um, grew up in a conservative Christian home, uh, was taught the traditional doctrines of the Christian faith. But as she talked to you on the airplane, she had some different views of Jesus. She couldn't picture a Jesus that would uh, could possibly send someone to hell. Talk about that encounter. Yeah, uh, you know, first of all, just to mention briefly, um, with all these encounters that we talk about, um, you know, for the the reader of the book and the listener to understand, uh, these stories, we could consider them uh, fictitious stories based upon real-life events. And so in order to, to hide... Uh, you know, people's, uh, you know, conversations that I've had throughout the last 20 years uh, to respect confidentiality and so forth. Um, you know, a lot of these stories, the, the names and the, the context and the places were altered. Uh, so, again, they're, they're fictitious stories, but they're definitely based upon real-life occurrences and real-life events. And so just probably just to state that right up, right up front. Um, but with that stated... Yeah, Jillian is is very interesting. Um, uh, met Jillian on a plane, and uh, the conversation pursued. You know, obviously, any time that I'm on a plane, if I'm wearing a collar, or, or even if I'm not wearing a collar, a clergy collar, you know, usually have those encounters with individuals. You know, what do you do for a living? Um, you know, where are you from, and so forth. And typically, you know, when I'm on the airplane, if somebody finds out I'm a pastor, uh, the conversation either shuts down real quickly because they don't want to talk to a pastor, and uh, you know, the, the headset goes on or the, the um, earphones go on and they listen to their program. It's a quiet flight or it ends up being a very, um, boy, very, very detailed conversation where we talk about all aspects of the faith, uh, which happens quite often on, on the airplanes for me. And Jillian was one of those where, you know, she she shared her struggles of, of uh, you know, how, her family was looking at Jesus. And so it was not necessarily that she was communicating, hey, I believe a false Christ. She was troubled with the Jesus of her parents and her pastor and her family uh, of her Midwestern roots. And so she could not fathom uh, why uh, the parents, her parents and her pastor and her family uh, had such a rigid view of Jesus, a Jesus who uh, believed in hell, a Jesus who actually called sin, sin, and uh, a Jesus who didn't uh, really, really came across as, um, how would we say this, uh, this Jesus who came across from her family 
that made her really uncomfortable um, and, and almost interrogated her. And so she's really struggling with, with the Jesus of her childhood. And so as we hit pause and we, we look at Jillian, what we realize is really there's only a couple options. Either her family and her pastor and her church had changed, uh, maybe with the blowing reeds of, of, of the winds of culture, or she had changed or both had changed. And as we hear in that story, um, really her pastor and her church had not changed. Uh, her family had not changed. It was actually Jillian who had changed. But she did not see herself as one leaving the Christian faith. I mean, she still attended with her family several times a year, but yet she had this great uncomfortableness uh, regarding Jesus because the Jesus of her upbringing was just too stern. And what we realize is that she has slowly shifted into subscribing to a false Christ, uh, a false Christ that we call the mascot. Um, do you want me to expound on the mascot a yes, little bit? Yes, please. Okay, okay. Um, so the mascot um, is, a, is a false Christ who doesn't subscribe to the law. So God's law is expressed in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the mascot does not like that because the law actually shows us our sin. And if it shows us our sin, that would make us feel bad. So the law is then rejected. And then also the doctrine of hell is rejected as well with the mascot false Christ. Because hell uh, is scary. It makes me feel uncomfortable. So, you know, when we say me, all of us, it makes us feel uncomfortable, especially for Jillian. So she would reject the, the doctrine of hell. She would reject, reject the doctrine of the law. And then she would embrace something called hedonism. And uh, hedonism is basically an ideology in our world that says that the goal of every human being is to be happy. And so if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. As we think about Sheryl Crow, that old song, uh, the old rocker, she, and I'm not going to sing that song, but <laughs> she, that old song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And that's, that's hedonism. It says that hedonism, hedonism, the goal of hedonism is to pursue happiness at all costs. So if you're happy, it's good. And if you feel sad, it must be bad. And so Jillian has, has rejected the law. She's rejected hell. And she's embraced a Jesus, a false Jesus, a false Christ, that is all about her pursuing happiness and uh, pursuing that which makes her feel good. And so obviously we can see where that comes into conflict with the uh, Jesus of the Bible. One, ex one manifestation of that is in these words. She says, uh, you know, what I've really come to really hate lately, I hate the word hate. I hate when people are judged because it is so sad to be judged. It just hurts me and makes me feel tense, gloomy, and kind of angry. But I also know when something is right and when people should not be judged. Okay, so how is it that I know what is right and what is wrong? When something is good, I just know with every fiber of my being that it is not sinful. Yes, when something is good, truly good, I'm 100% passionate about it, and my heart and soul and mind are in a really positive and good place. Let's hit pause right there, and could you speak to that? those just few lines about her, her uh, measuring stick for right and wrong? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, boy, she's a hedonist through and through. And a hedonist, again, is somebody who uh, has a uh, their, their morality, their outlook on life is based upon their feelings. Now, uh, we think about this, you know, we can say, well, this is kind of absurd. But, but the reality is how much do we all, even, even as Christians, we, we sometimes give into this, where if I feel sad or I feel uncomfortable, then we equate that as being bad. 
and if I feel happy and I have uh, pleasantries, then it must be good. And so then what happens is we base morality, our ethics, upon our feelings of sadness and happiness. And so by going that route, we say anything that causes me discomfort, it must be bad and avoided. And especially people who come at me, uh, and they, they, they come at me and judge me, if they come out and point out my sin, if it makes me sad, then I must judge them as a hater. They must not be loving me. They must be evil because that causes me great discomfort. And so Jillian has totally bought into hedonism, which is the, the idea that there's a pursuit of pleasure at all costs. That is the goal of Americans um, in general is to be happy happy. Um, and if anybody stands in the way of me feeling happy, uh, they're a hater, uh, they're not uh, embracing the false Christ that I have. Uh, and this false Christ, the mascot, has its pom-poms. And we use the word mascot because we think of a, a mascot for a sports team. Um, I've never seen a mascot ever come down hard on a sports team, even if they're down, uh, you know, like if it's a baseball game, and they're down 15 runs to nothing. Well, everybody else may go home, and the fans may be booing, but the mascot is out there jumping around doing cartwheels and cheering to the very last inning of the game. And the mascot will never speak evil of the team, no matter, no matter how bad they do. And that's the way of this false Christ called the mascot that Jillian has ascribed to. This false Christ will do nothing but encourage her in her pursuit of happiness at all costs. And uh, again, Jillian bases her ethics upon her feelings. If she feels bad, it must be evil. If she feels happy, it must be good. Um, and ultimately, that again puts her understanding of ethics uh, in, not only embedded in herself, but embedded in her feelings. And oh my goodness, feelings are are so, so unpredictable. Um, and and as, as we know, too, uh, just because it feels bad, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Many times that which is best for us uh, as human beings is that which causes the most pain. And so um, we, we have to be very, very careful of this hedonism that Jillian has embraced and this false Christ called the mascot. Does the mascot Jesus uh, ever have anything negative to say towards anyone? Or is is the mascot Jesus really... Um, uh, would never just say anything uh, bad or negative towards me, but maybe perhaps other people in certain circumstances. Yeah, the mascot. Now, now you know, keep in, keep in mind um, a mascot for a team. Uh, you know, so if if we have a, a you know, I'm just thinking of uh, down the road here, in North Dakota, in Fargo, we have the the bison, and they have a mascot called Thundar, and Thundar is a is a big a big bison a mascot. And Thundar, I mean, he never, ever, ever comes down hard on the uh, NDSU football bison team. But he will trash talk other teams mm -hmm. uh, that get in the way of, of his own bison team. And that's, that's the way with this mascot false Christ. This mascot Christ is an individualized, personal Jesus that someone like Jillian has created in her own mind. And this mascot will be all about affirming and cheering on, cheering on Jillian in her pursuit of happiness. And anybody that comes in the way of that... Uh, this false Christ will drop the pom-poms and get disgusted with Jillian. Uh, and this false, false Christ will then say, well, who are they to judge you and to stand in the way of your goals, of your rights of being happy? And this 
false Christ will whisper into Jillian's ear, uh, you deserve to be happy at all costs. It's all about you. It's about your happiness and your goals. And, uh, you know, basically, forget anybody else who will come against you and give you hate. Uh, they don't truly love you if they cause you pain. And so this false Christ is, again, an individualized uh, false Christ that Jillian has embraced, and is and he is all about his pom poms and cheering are all about Jillian, um, at all costs to appease and to affirm her in uh, her desires of wanting to be happy. You say that the uh, false Christ of the mascot has three characteristics. Uh, one accepts ethical hedonism. You talked about that. Number two avoids the law. I think you talked about that. But I want you to talk about this third characteristic that he avoids the doctrine of hell. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if if, if there's no such thing as the doctrine of hell, then we could simply say that our universe and a world that we live in is not. Uh, I would repeat this: it is not morally significant. In other words, if there's no judgment at the very end, then our actions that we do right here and right now um, have no consequence. Uh, there, there's no bearing um, that our actions and what we do in this world, uh, if there's no such thing as a judgment, there's no uh, moral significance of what we do. So, you know, truly, if there's no, no doctrine of hell, um, if the mascot Christ is right and there's no doctrine of hell, then all of us, we should be hedonists. We should do whatever makes us happy, and we should go down that road of a trying to accentuate and to get for ourselves uh, everything possible and at all costs. And if there's no hell, there's no consequence to our actions. If there's no hell, there's no doctrine of judgment, then uh, there's no ethical bearing on our life right here and right now. And so if there's no doctrine of hell, there's no moral significance to this life. Uh, but if there is a judgment, there is moral significance to this life, uh, then there is an ethic in this life, knowing that our um, deeds will be judged um, at the very end of the age. And so then that actually usurps um, this false Christ called the mascot. And, uh, you know, as we know, I mean, that, that's actually hard news for us to hear, the doctrine of hell. It makes us uncomfortable, um, as it should. But we know as Christians in the real Jesus Christ that in the real Jesus Christ that we are judged in Christ. And Jesus was perfect on our behalf. And as we tell our children here at Zion, uh, you know, Jesus takes our badness upon himself and he gives us his goodness so that at the very end of the age, when the great judgment happens, um, you know, the, we, we are judged by Jesus, our Lord, who is our friend, and he has already atoned and forgiven us of all of our sins. And so our actions are forgiven in Christ. Um, and he says to us, job well done, good and faithful servants. Um, but apart from uh, the real Jesus Christ, um, really we have two options. You know, either we um, you know, dismiss the doctrine of hell, um, which leads us into a delusion, or we understand as a doctrine of hell, and either we repent uh, and adhere the real Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, or we dig ourselves in and we balk at the idea of hell, and we, we fight against God, we war at God, war against God, uh, which is tragic in itself, too, as well. Before we go to this next break, how would you uh, suggest we approach a uh, response to Jillian? Well, yeah, very good question. Um, with Jillian, what we want to do 
is we, we want to help, first and foremost, to expose her hedonism. Uh, we, we have to help her understand um, that she is entrenched in her feelings as a basic for ethics. So uh, I think the best way to do it is, is the, the, what they call the old Socratic method. You know, Socrates was brilliant um, at asking questions. And so we, I think we really need to ask Jillian questions. And questions such as being, you know, has there ever been times in your life where uh, you felt really bad about things, but it turned out to be really good for you, or that you felt really, really good about something and it turned out to be really bad. And what we want to do is really expose to her and help her understand that her feelings cannot be the gauge for basing what is right and what's wrong. We have to show the disconnect between her emotions and what reality is, that it's not logically consistent. And then when that happens, uh, Lord willing, when that happens with the, with the Jillians in our life, when we can expose that hedonism, then we are able to confess the real Jesus, um, the real Jesus to her, um, that the real Jesus comes, uh, not only do we hear the law and we hear about the doctrine of hell, but the real Jesus comes and, and, and he proclaims to us that he forgives us of our sins and he rescues us from the uh, eternal consequence of hell by by his shed blood for us, by him suffering hell on the cross for us. And so that can only happen, though, when we expose Jillian's false Christ first and foremost. All right, let's take one more break. We'll be right back talking with Matt Richard, author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? You're listening to Once for All. The phone lines are now open. Call toll-free 1-844-51-FAITH. That's 1-844-51-FAITH. Now it's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. One of the things that seems popular to say today about the church is that it's not your grandparents' church anymore. The more I think about this, the more terribly upsetting it becomes. Because the scriptures constantly talk about the Lord continuing his mercy from generation to generation to generation. Thousands upon thousands of generations. That's, that's how he promises it. To those who love him and keep his commandments, he will have mercy to a thousand generations. The Lord intends for his love to go from parent to child, and then from child to their child, and so forth and so on. So I know that my grandparents' church was the church of the gospel. The church that trusted in Jesus. The church that had eternal life because of Jesus' death on the cross. That's their church. And if I have a different church, then that means I don't have the church of the gospel anymore. That means that I don't have a church that that brings to eternal life. It means that I've got something that I think is better, but in the end is worse. It's nothing at all. The oldest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 90, written by Moses. And he begins his psalm with these marvelous words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The Lord is our dwelling place from grandparent to child to grandchild to great-grandchild and so forth and so on until the Lord Jesus returns. And so let us rejoice that from day to day and from generation to generation, the Lord's mercy is the same. And his mercy is our life. Amen. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. This is Sacred Meditations. 
God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in glory everlasting. Amen. prayers and meditations on God's Word, check out sacredmeditations.org. Thank you for making Sacred Meditations part of your day. And we're back. You're listening to Once for All, just about 15 more minutes for your phone calls with our our uh, guest this day, Matthew Richard, who authored the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? The toll-free number, one eight four four five one faith Matt, in the, in the next chapter, we, we uh, meet Tamar, who you met when you were um, uh, having, having coffee, and uh, you call Tamar the religious pluralist. Introduce us to Tamar. Yeah, he's an individual, uh, again, meet at a coffee shop and uh, uh, basically visiting, um, happened to you know, be a pretty full coffee shop, and he happens to look over on the computer screen and notice uh, uh, the, uh, the Bible, which is written in Greek, and it sparked a conversation where we started visiting about Jesus. And uh, uh, come to find out that uh, he has a view of Jesus that is kind of similar to Jillian, but yet different. Each of these um, individuals, they have a lot of similar characteristics, but yet at the same time, they're different spins of uh, the real Jesus. And he has gone down the road of idolatry as well, creating the false Christ. And this false Christ is um, basically a very tolerant, uh, culturally tolerant uh, Jesus, where he tolerates everyone, and he also uh, t- uh, he believes in in a, um, a religious pluralism. Plural, boy, man, tongue-tied pluralism, and uh, that basically says this is that all religions and all spiritual leaders are all different spiritual gurus, and they all lead to the same place. And so Jesus is just one option among many. And in order to be the option among many, he has to be tolerant. Uh, the false Christ has to be tolerant of all the different religions. And so, uh, you know, Tamar, when he looks at, uh, you know, Christianity, he, he, he reacts against exclusiveness. Uh, you know, he reacts against any exclusive claims of Jesus being the way and the truth and the life. Um, he, he wants to blend all the religions together as one big happy family, and the Jesus that he embraces is one that who uh, is buddy-buddy with Muhammad and buddy-buddy with Joseph Smith and um, all the different Hindu gods, and they are just one big, happy, jolly, good old family tolerating each other, all leading us as different paths to the one eternal hope that we have. Is, is part of the... Um uh, uh, issue with a uh, religious pluralist is that they're uh, reducing all the religions down, and what they're all really reducing them down to is the commonality of the law, but that is to neglect the uniqueness of Christianity that there is, in fact, a gospel that's different from all the rest. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's been said before, and I agree with this, that, that all the religions in the world can really uh, be classified into two categories. Uh, the category of the first being do. Uh, it's what you do. It's how high you climb. It's how much you... Um, you know, how much you give us spiritually, emotionally, and academically, and intellectually in order to arrive at some eternal hope or some eternal source. Um, and Christianity stands as the lonely way on the opposite side, uh, being all about what is done for you. And so either you have a religion where you are the active participant climbing, uh, reaching, trying to acquire, or Christianity is the complete opposite where we're passive and we receive the great gift of what was done for us in the real Jesus Christ. Um, but more than that, you know, what's interesting in this option among many, this false Christ called the option among many, is that um, with the individual we meet in chapter 2 tomorrow, uh, when we meet him, uh, what we realize is that he has boiled all religions down to basically being the same thing. So not only does he uh, chip away at the exclusiveness of Christianity, but he also disrespects all the other religions as well. I mean, because when we really think about it, when it comes to the religion of Islam, Islam is exclusive as well. Uh, when we think about their their main sayings, that there's there's only Muhammad, he's the only prophet. Uh, they have uh, Allah, the only God. They have exclusive claims embedded in Islam, as well as the other religions of the world. They're all exclusive as well. So he not only disrespects Christianity, saying that Christianity uh, is is you know waters that down, but he waters down all the other religions, and he makes a big melting pot. And so it's, it's disrespectful of all religions, um, and not only that, but he's just very quite naive on the whole subject in general. So how would Timar or religious pluralists like him uh, deal with passages like John fourteen six, which say, you know, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me? Yeah, I mean, what we see there in in John chapter fourteen is that the you know John actually or Jesus you know says he says that I am uh, the way and the truth and the life. He uses a definite article which is the, and uh, that is there very much as a purpose. He didn't say you know I am a way and a truth and a life, but he says I am the way and the truth and the life, and so. Uh, for tomorrow he he would look at um, he would look at uh, that passage and he would very very much squirm he would very much struggle with that um, he would actually try to dismiss that at all costs because an exclusive Jesus uh, does not mesh with his false Christ um, and this false Christ that he has is all about tolerance and when we think about tolerance though uh, tolerance is really not a biblical term. I mean, we hear all about it, how we're supposed to be tolerant. Uh, the Bible typically condemns the idea of tolerance, uh, where, where it exalts the idea of love. Uh, we Christians, um, you know, we are to love our neighbor. Uh, we're not to tolerate our neighbor. We're to love our neighbor. And that love means to be patient and gentle and kind and also be truthful, to speak the truth and love to them. Uh, but tolerance has evolved in our culture to not only put up with another person, but tolerance has evolved to the point where we are not only to tolerate another person, but we are then compelled by all of our 
hmm, how do we say this, all of our reason, our strength to exalt and to applaud their views, even if we disagree with them. Um, and that, that goes the way of falsehood. And so when we look at this false Christ, this false Christ is all about getting rid of, ex- get rid of exclusiveness. Um, this false Christ is about giving uh, tolerance at all costs. Uh, making a melting pot that where everybody is a winner together, where all of these religions lead to the same path, where we can all, you know, basically skip through the rose petals and uh, long walks on the beach, and we're all happy, uh, and it waters everything down. And uh, really, uh, you know, having this false Christ really stands for nothing um, at all. And so it's very tragic indeed. You have an interesting excursus in your book where you contrast uh, tolerance versus love, and you say that uh, because love is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments, that's what Jesus says, then it is impossible that, uh, that love would ever contradict the Ten Commandments of God. Yeah, yeah. When we think about this, you know, the the, the two different sides to this, um, we we know love by the Ten Commandments. You know, um, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, you know, love the Lord God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, which he's essentially summarizing the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments we can divide into two tables. We can talk about the first table, which is the first three commandments between our relationship of us and God. And the commandments 4 through 10 are all about a relationship between us and our neighbor. And at the heart of all the Ten Commandments is love, love for God and love for our neighbor. And so if we want to understand what love is, it's actually the Ten Commandments. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, they're all about love. And so uh, we, we can't really pit the two against each other. And that's what I find amazing. I mean, we go back to Jillian, uh, you know, and we go back to other characters in this book. Uh, Many of them will talk about wanting to love, but they will have a difficult time defining what that love actually is. Well, for us as Christians, we, we know what that love is. We can define it really, really specifically. Love is found in the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, when we love our neighbor, we don't steal our neighbor's speedboat. Um, we don't try to take our neighbor's wife. We don't try to kill our neighbor. We, we do the exact opposite. We, we honor their marriage uh, by God's grace. We, we honor their property. We, we honor their life, and we support them um, with all of our means that we have before us. And that is loving. That is going the way of the Ten Commandments. Um, but when it comes to understanding love, uh, unfortunately, uh, with many of these false Christs, they, divide, they define love as more of a uh, fluffy, abstract thing uh, that comes the way of tolerance. And again, tolerance and love are not the same thing. Tolerance is a pagan virtue, where love is a definitely a Christian virtue. Matt, we have about three minutes left in our conversation. I want to be sure to get to this because I found it very interesting a way to describe um, the situation where a religious pluralist is in. And you talk about the binary systems of the Bible and of religion. And uh, would you talk about that and how the religious pluralist wants to reject the binary system altogether? Yes. Um, a binary system is essentially this. If I say, give an example here. If I say, um, if I say um, okay, heaven, then you would say what? 
Uh, hell. You say hell, right? And so if I say heaven, you say hell. Um, if, if I say up, then the person would say down. Um, so a binary system is to have uh, these, these, these opposites, right? So we have heaven and hell, light and dark, uh, slave or free, um, you know, up and down. They're binary systems where we have one and there's an opposite end. Well, what, that, what happens with that is, is uh, going the way of, of this false Christ, the option among many, this option among many will deny and reject uh, this binary of, of having heaven and hell or light and dark and so forth. And so it's, it's all about eliminating that because then having a binary system like that, it actually creates that some people are in and some that are out. Some people are going to have heaven and some are going to have hell. And this actually creates the two categories where uh, it puts tension. So the false Christ wants to get rid of this distinction and, and melt it all together. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. So um, with a, uh, about a minute and a, a half left here, how would you approach a response to someone like Tamar? Well, I think it might be surprising, but I think we would want to start with the other religions in the world um, and maybe kind of back into it. And so uh, this might demand a little bit of research uh, being done among, um, you know, the listeners if they, if they encounter a false Christ called the option, the main, um, option among many, and that is to learn the religions and the tenets of different religions such as Islam and Hinduism, um, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and to point out the fact that they have exclusive claims, uh, that they make exclusive claims about uh, their view of uh, the, the, their faith, and then to point out that Christianity has exclusive claims as well. And then once you have all the exclusive claims laid out, uh, then that's really where you can go into pointing out uh, the really unique exclusive claims of, of Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, that he is exclusively the one who was born of the Virgin, um, who lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, and rose from the grave, and to show that his exclusive claims are, are completely um, in a league of their own compared to all of the other exclusive claims um, in the religions of the world. All right, we've been talking with Pastor Matthew Richard. He's author of the brand new book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, 12 False Christ. You can check it out by going to uh, cph.org slash realjesus. Pastor Richard, thanks for uh, coming on, and we look forward to continuing this series with you next week and look at more of the false Christ that you present to us in the book. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been really, really fun and, and uh, yeah, very fun to think about and consider. So appreciate it very much. We look forward to it again. Thank you for listening to this edition of Once For All. You can listen again to this episode by going to onceforallradio.com. This has been Once For All. You can contact the show by sending an email, delivered onceforall at gmail.com. You can listen again to this show or any other episodes by visiting onceforallradio.com. Until next time, stand firm in the faith once delivered to the saints.